0: Snuff
1: Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Friday the 6th of August. Tom Tilly joined by Jan Fran. And Jan, there's been another turn in the vaccine story for you.
0: Yeah, I think it's a turn for the better this time because I finally did get vaccinated with the AstraZeneca vaccine earlier this week. I did get some side effects though. Chills, feeling a bit tired, muscle soreness, nothing out of the ordinary. So if you didn't hear my dulcet tones on the briefing yesterday, that was why.
1: Right. So you had to take a day off. It felt that bad.
0: I just felt sore and I sort of felt headachy. And, you know, these are symptoms that the doctor said could happen. They happen to one out of every two people. So half the people who get this vaccine get um, side effects. But it's all but disappeared pretty much.
1: Okay. And they also said one in four may need to take the day off work. So that's a sort of... Statistical probability of this kind of reaction happening.
0: Yeah, I would just suggest that if you are going to get vaccinated, just try and clear your calendar from, say, operating heavy machinery for the <laughs> 24 hours afterwards.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, in today's briefing, we've got a really interesting interview with Dr. Nick Coatsworth, getting him back on the show. Um, he's pushing back on other health experts who are really spearheading that zero risk approach to managing the pandemic.
2: There is a centre to all of this and the centre is often the place where you need to gravitate to.
1: Dr Nick Coatsworth coming up first, here are the big stories of today.
0: Well, I wish we could be starting with some good news, but alas, Victoria has joined Greater Sydney and Brisbane in lockdown after another COVID Delta strain outbreak.
1: I can't tell you how disappointed I am to have to be here doing this again, but with so few in the community with one vaccination, let alone two, I literally have no choice. That's Dan Andrews, the Victorian Premier, after announcing eight new local cases yesterday. It's Victoria's sixth lockdown since the beginning of the pandemic, and it's going to cover the whole state for seven days.
0: Yeah, so this has come about because of um, two micro clusters. So you've got the female teacher and her partner at the Altaqua School who've infected two close contacts. Um, there was also a traffic controller at a COVID testing site that got it and passed it on to three close contacts. There's also been another unrelated case um, that does bring the total of nine cases there. And I think what's concerning authorities is that they're unsure where that last case has come from.
1: Yeah, and then there was a protest in the streets of Melbourne last night as the rules came into force. This lockdown has come just nine days after the last one, so obviously there's a lot of people who aren't happy about it. Premier Andrews said the lockdown was the only way to fight the rebounding cases. My fear is that if we were to wait a few days, there's every chance that instead of being locked down for a week, this gets away from us and we are potentially locked down until we all get vaccinated. Which is the situation here in Sydney, Jan?
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it's been really interesting to hear our leaders shift from uh, wanting to get the cases in the community down to zero to wanting to get as many people vaccinated as possible. The Victorian government is following uh, New South Wales' lead and will imminently announce that Victorians aged under 60 will be able to receive the AstraZeneca vaccine. This is at state-run locations um, after receiving advice from their GP. And again, we know that 70% of cases in New South Wales, this was just data from the last 24 hours, have appeared in under 40s. Um, So young people are really driving that spread. Victoria is seeing that happen in New South Wales and it wants people to get vaccinated ASAP.
1: And Sydney's lockdown's been expanded to Newcastle and the Hunter regions after new cases were reported there. Uh, new South Wales recorded its deadliest day yesterday with five deaths recorded and 262 new local cases.
0: Yeah, five of those cases were recorded in Newcastle. Now, this was after a COVID positive teenager from Western Sydney broke lockdown restrictions and travelled to a beach party last weekend, spreading the virus to a friend. Now, these cases are the first in the region in 12 months.
1: And the Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, welcomed the allocation of an extra 180,000 Pfizer doses to the state, saying they'll replace doses previously shifted from the Hunter to Year 12 student in Sydney.
0: It means we can replace those in the regions that we had to take, but it also means that we have opportunities to vaccinate younger, very mobile people who have to leave those eight local government areas. Yeah, right now there are about 15 million Australians currently in lockdown mm. some light at the end of the tunnel for southeast Queensland their restrictions look set to be lifted on Sunday they recorded 16 cases in the state yesterday all linked so that's what's giving authorities there a little bit of confidence but it doesn't it doesn't look good for australia i wouldn't say that august 2021 has been a great time for the country And sadly, uh, a New South Wales woman in her 30s um, has become the seventh person to die after developing the rare clotting disorder linked to the AstraZeneca vaccine as well.
1: And the founder of the Hillsong Church, Brian Houston, says he'll return to Australia to clear his name after being charged with covering up sexual abuse by his father, Frank Houston, in the 70s.
0: Yeah, Brian Houston, um, he's currently in the US. Uh, His lawyers were served with a notice requiring him to attend court in Sydney in October.
1: And the federal government's committed $1 billion to closing the gap, uh, improving the livelihoods of Indigenous Australians. The PM made the announcement yesterday, giving an update on the long-running program, and seeking to raise the living standards of Indigenous people to match those of non-Indigenous people.
0: Yeah, so the new Closing the Gap Agreement set uh, a number of new targets, including reducing the number of Indigenous youths in custody, improving early education and raising life expectancy. Um, There's more than $300 million of funding that'll go towards setting up a compensation scheme as well. This is for survivors of the stolen generation in the ACT and the Northern Territory.
1: The Australian Olympic team has levelled up with our best ever gold medal count, which is 17 gold medals, matching our record from Athens in 2004. Uh, we did have more silver and bronze that year, but there are still three days to go.
0: Yeah, there's been wins in kayaking and skateboarding yesterday, and we won two gold medals there. 18-year-old Keegan Palmer won the first ever skateboarding gold, and Thomas Green and Jean van der Westenheisen became the first Aussies to win the men's double kayak event.
1: Yeah, and so there's still a chance in the Women's Beach Volleyball. We've got the finals coming up. We're playing the US, and we've also got a chance in the javelin event. So,
0: Do you think yeah. we'll do it? Will we clinch it? Will this be our best Olympics ever?
1: Yes, we can do it. We, <laughs> we need to do it.
0: You know, I've been pretty agnostic on the Olympics. I, I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a good thing to have, particularly at this time. But I was watching the men's pole vault. I was sort of channel surfing and landed mm. on the men's
1: pole vault,
0: and by the end of it, I was like hurling stuff at the TV. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, those events are amazing. That and the high jump, they're so tense.
0: Yeah, so it was dramatic. a very tense event. I ended up going for the Swede. I'd never heard of him before. <laughs> I love him now.
1: And that pole it looks kind of medieval, that sport, the pole vault, don't you think?
0: Yeah, it's. I, I, I'm still kind of trying to work out the machinations of it and how they possibly get that high. But we'll, we'll save that pondering for another day.
1: Could be the new squash. All right, Jam, we'll catch you later. Dr. Nick Coatsworth is about to join us along with Katrina Blowers.
3: Hey Katrina Blowers here with you. On today's briefing, we get Dr. Nick Coatsworth back because He's taking an interesting stand. He's pushing back on the hardline zero risk COVID approach that's being pushed by experts in quotation marks. So Dr Coatesworth was the deputy CMO for six months. He's an infectious disease expert and also the director of medical services for Canberra Health Services.
1: Yeah, so this briefing we're about to bring you came about from the conversation we had with Nick last week. We got him on to answer your questions about the vaccines or all the curly questions you asked, which was a really good episode, one of our most popular for the month. But we didn't have time to get into this whole other topic that he's been very outspoken about in recent weeks.
3: He's been outspoken about this on socials. He's also written a strong opinion piece in The Herald and Age where he wrote that the most egregious example of the influence of risk-averse academics and medical commentators on policy has been anti astrazenecism which has afflicted our rollout this was not academic freedom it was academic dishonesty
1: yeah so very strong call since writing that opinion piece he's been on twitter he's criticized and contradicted dr norman swan from the abc and professor bill botell who we've both had on this show over the last year so nick welcome back you've written about medical experts getting lots of airtime who are way too pessimistic tell us what you're worried about
2: Yeah. Thanks, Tom. And I reckon it's probably best described. I talked to one of the uh, senior journalists at the Nine Papers about six weeks ago, just before I published that op-ed. And I said, why are some of these people getting asked these questions? There's experts in certain fields and people are giving very pessimistic outlooks and they're almost never right. What's going on? And the response was, they give good copy. And I thought, oh man, you know, that's troubling and of course that's the way the media operates but the consumer on the other end it's very difficult to differentiate between someone like me, who's an infectious disease physician who sees patients, as opposed to an academic epidemiologist, as opposed to, say, a communications director, in the case of someone like Bill Botel. So in the consumer's eyes, everyone is on equal footing, and that's actually not the case. And so some of these claims that are being advanced about, you know, Sydney's going to become the new New Delhi in terms of COVID, That's never going to happen because we're not New Delhi.
1: Okay, so you've singled out Bill Botel there. I've noticed on Twitter you've also taken issue with Norman Swan. Um, Recently, he made a comment that people in New South Wales are being treated like guinea pigs with this new approach of relying on a vaccine to ease lockdown restrictions. So there's two people you've singled out. What are your problems with the way those two are communicating?
2: I have no problem with opinion coming from either of them, but with this pandemic, you know, and, unless we exhume someone from the Spanish flu in 1918, we're all in the same boat in terms of our pandemic experience, which is none of us have experienced one. So then it's about how you're framing things. And to tell Sydney residents at the moment they're guinea pigs, I just think it's not accurate.
3: So, okay, you mentioned the phrase guinea pigs. What other misinformation has kind of left you scratching your head lately?
2: In the past, we've seen things like, if we don't get on top of this, we're going to have 30,000 cases a week and so on and so forth. More recently, as people who proffer that sort of opinion have realised that that's actually probably not going to happen in Australia right now, it's switched back to, okay, well, nothing but... COVID zero is in any way tolerable, if we project that into 2022, which is not that far away, then the only thing you can conclude is that people who proffer that view and who take that sort of very risk-averse approach will still be looking for lockdowns. Even when we've got our target population vaccinated, so 70% for the first milestone, 80% for the second milestone. And I think those people are still going to be asking for lockdowns because they're still going to be going for COVID zero. And that is what concerns me because there's an impact on young people who are undoubtedly, I think, the most affected by lockdowns. And we need to give them hope that we are actually going to adhere to these targets and open up when we say we're going to open up.
3: All right. So, as someone on the other side of the fence, I work in the media. The media is a hungry beast, and you're assigned to do a story every day. You know, there's yep. a 24 hour news cycle. You do tend to gravitate towards people who are a good talent on air. So, they're people who can <laughs> talk the leg off a chair and people who are available. So, how do we as journalists critically analyse who we should be seeking opinion from? And how do consumers then filter through that white noise?
2: I think one of the most important things is to very briefly but accurately state what the person's qualifications are. So, I did an interview with the Canberra Times uh, yesterday and Alex Crow said, um, oh, it's great to be able to interview um, you three epidemiologists. It was me, Peter Collignon, Sanjay and I, and I said, oh, we're infectious disease physicians. It's really important that you quote us as that. So, that, that would be a good first step. Everybody who's got an opinion at the moment is being called an epidemiologist, <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and we're definitely not. The second thing is I just think some questioning. If someone said something in the past that hasn't happened, circle back on that. You're telling Australians this, but six months ago you said there were going to be 30,000 cases and the Northern Mm -hmm. Beaches Cluster was going to turn us into New Delhi. How are Australians supposed to believe you?
1: People online have been saying, you said COVID wasn't airborne,
2: but it is. Yeah, well, that is something that we said very early on. It wasn't as transmissible as measles. And we use that as an example. Now, early on in the pandemic, we didn't know about COVID as much as we do now. There's a more transmissible variant. There's definitely instances of airborne transmission. And we had to change our guidelines across 2020. We have to own all those things.
1: So, that was a mea culpa f- from you. You had that wrong at the time and you changed your view and you acknowledged that?
2: Absolutely. We had a view on how much airborne transmission there was. Everybody's always known that there's airborne transmission or, or we prefer to call it aerosol transmission of viruses. And that was in the very first guidelines. But the extent to which that was happening, that has definitely been a learning for us, that it's more than we originally thought. Absolutely.
3: So, could you not apply that same sort of scope to the people who are saying things, you know, about the Sydney cluster, for example, that Northern Beaches cluster, and making predictions about how bad they thought it was going to be? As you said, like everyone who went through the last pandemic is dead now. Um, so, <laughs> none of us have been through this before. So, we're making predictions kind of crystal ball gazing in a way. And those people could also be helping curb COVID complacency. So, isn't that a good? thing?
2: That's a good way to think about it. The problem is that it ends up setting society's risk point at a certain level. People become completely afraid. And if you look at the way that West Australians are thinking at the moment, and I'm a West Australian, so I'll just put that out there, I think it's going to be a year or two before West Australian citizens accept a COVID case into the community. Now, that's going to cause immense social problems when we don't really need to take that sort of risk-averse approach in a fully vaccinated population. You know, as I said, first milestone 70%, second milestone 80%. There's some experts out there who do not appear to have moved on the risk-averse position. Mm. And I think that's what's worrying me the most.
1: It's a really tricky one because everyone comes at this pandemic, and I think it's been really interesting the way that's borne this out with their own biases, their own natural posture. Every individual has a different risk profile to the next one based on their lived experience, their psychology, their education, all these different measures. And I can't help but think that that flows through to experts as well, where you would expect their, the discipline of their study would neutralize their personal biases, but it doesn't seem to do that. And I wonder, Nick, are you are you a victim of that as well? Like To put it right out there, I I share your views from what I'm hearing from you that you're frustrated at the zero COVID approach and it's something that I don't side with either. I think we need, do need to find a middle ground here. But are you really making a, a strong systematic argument about which specialist should get the right amount of airtime and be challenged in the right way? Or are you just calling out people that you don't agree with?
2: That's a seriously good question there is a centre to all of this. And the centre is often the place where you need to gravitate to. So the two sides being let it rip. Mm. I think there's a news network that's uh, suffered a little on YouTube in the past week, (laughs) putting forward those sort of ideas. But the other side of let it rip is we can't have any for the foreseeable future and into 2022, or we need unrealistic vaccination rates, as the Grattan Institute report suggests. And Mm. They're both extremes and extremes get us into trouble. Charting a centre path forward looks a, a little bit like this. New South Wales needs to do its absolute best to bend that curve down and really decrease community transmission and should still target, and I think they probably still are, COVID zero at the moment because we can see what happens if you don't do that. You get young people dying from COVID 19 if your vaccinated population is too low. So this is 2021. What we need to look at is 2022 when we've reached our milestones and we have to accept some COVID in the community. There's no way that in 2022 we should not be able to go to funerals interstate if we're vaccinated, Mm. attend important life events, you know. I've got patients here with horrible cancers, whose families are bending over backwards to try and get into the ACT and having to jump through all these hoops to get in. That's got to stop in 2022. And I think that's the center road that we have to take between those two extremes. As soon as you you say you want to have some sort of level of COVID within the community, then you're stuck in the let it rip sort of camp. Mm. Um, that's not the case at all. Like All of us agree that we need to get control as quick as we can at the moment in Sydney, but it's more what we look at in 2022. And at that point, the role of the experts is to advise, to provide opinion, to try and stick within their swim lane as much as they can. But then it's the role of the health bureaucrats, the public administrators and the politicians to start to balance what effect this is actually having on society. No clinician or epidemiologist in Australia disagrees with the idea that we've got to get vaccinated as quickly as we can. We've got two available and effective vaccines. Astra is more available and people in outbreak areas need to get themselves jabbed with Astra. So we're all in agreement with that. And we're all in agreement that the higher we go with that, the more freedoms we're going to have as a community. So arguments around the edges, which is, is 70% too high, too low. The principles behind it, fortunately, are the same. And then it's about us all being open to criticism of our views, keep it polite. I think that's a really important thing because sometimes it gets a bit nasty online, <laughs> I've found out. And, uh, <laughs> and if we do that, we'll maintain the community's confidence. If we don't, it'll just get more confusing.
1: That was Dr Nick Coatsworth. And look, Katrina, his argument makes sense to me, but I've got to say that the really hardline zero risk viewpoint did seem to work in the early stages of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. It got Australia into an incredible position up until more recently.
3: Yeah, and I think, you know, he, he does make a valid point that maybe we journalists need to be a bit more critical about who we just automatically phone for comment on things and put that through a slightly different lens.
1: All right, that is it for your Monday to Friday briefing. Uh, Jamila, what's on the weekend briefing?
3: I am chatting with Jacob Stanley, who fans of the Just the Gist podcast will know and be wetting themselves with excitement about right now. Jacob is a really awesome guy who is currently travelling around Australia, seeing this country because his year of nomadic life around the world got cancelled by COVID. He used to run the learning and development department for Mecca Brands, and he takes us right inside the beauty industry. This was a chat that both surprised and absolutely delighted me.
1: Looking forward to that. Uh, Also looking forward to the briefing Instagram quiz today. Get around that. All the clues are in the headlines you just listened to, so maybe you'll have to go back and start again. I really like the quiz. As I've said before, more achievable than the good weekend quiz it makes you feel better about yourself, which is fantastic. So, take that into your weekend, and I'll speak to you Monday. Listener.